0: This podcast is brought to you by A.J. Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by A.J. Bell Media, part of A.J. Bell.
1: Hi, I'm Dan Coatesworth. Welcome to the latest episode of the A.J. Bell and Shares Magazine money and markets podcast. This week, we're looking at the key points from the Chancellor's Spring Statement. We'll dissect the positive and negatives and weigh up whether enough has been done to provide vital support to consumers as the nation faces a cost of living crisis. Joining me on the podcast this week is Danny Hewson.
2: Hi, Dan. With only a few days left before the end of the tax year, Laura Souter will be talking to RSM Tax Director Kate Aitchison to get some tips about how to understand HMRC's rules and where people often get caught out.
1: I'll be taking a quick look at what's been happening on the markets. And Danny will be chatting to Neil Shah from Edison Research about how London needs to up its game to stay attractive as a place where companies want to list their shares.
2: First up, let's start with the big news, which is the Chancellor's Spring Statement. Dan, there was so much speculation before this about the cost of living crisis and what Rishi Sunak would actually do. What did you think? Uh,
1: yeah, it wasn't quite uh, full of the sort of the, the sort of the nice gifts that the public wanted, I think. I mean, there are a few nuggets in there, which was, you know, were positives. Um, I certainly think that um, from a business perspective, and the oil and gas industry certainly be very pleased that there is definitely no sign of any uh, windfall tax on their profits. But, um, you know, at, at the end of the day, this, this this spring statement uh, more than any is, is all about the consumer, how they can h- get help when they've got the you know the energy bills, food bills, um, petrol bills all, all all shooting higher. so really it was you know all eyes were on Rishi Sunak to sort of deliver something there, and I think that he really did fall short of giving what people wanted.
2: Because 6.2% was the inflation number we got this morning. We're talking, obviously, Wednesday afternoon, uh, just coming up to three o'clock, not long after the Chancellor um, sat down after being on his feet without his red box. The big thing which people will be talking about, and I'm not going to talk about the rabbit to start with, the what is clearly a pre-election pledge. The big thing, Dan, seems to have been this change to the threshold at which this national insurance levy and all national insurance will be paid. There'd been a huge amount of pressure on the Chancellor to scrap the 1.25% levy. That levy, of course, to pay for uh, health and later social care, obviously, because with COVID, it's a huge backlog. The NHS is having to deal with so much. But when people are dealing with this cost of living crisis, and as I say, prices 6.2% they're going up by, they just didn't feel like they had anything to give in terms of, of extra payments. So a lot of pressure, and he did go some way to dealing with that.
1: So what? So with the national insurance thing, to me was you know the standout, the the positive that we'll see you know in the near term will be a benefit to people. But um, c- can you sort of quantify who will actually benefit from this, or or who will actually sort of lose out from sort of the changes that we're going to see?
2: Yes, yeah, so I was taking a look at the numbers, and of course, um, the threshold would have been 9,900 or thereabouts come April. Now that threshold is going to move to join the threshold for paying income tax, so 12,570 basic rate. What it means, obviously, anyone who earns under that threshold won't be paying any national insurance at all. So, you know, there's a a huge chunk there between 9,900 and 12,570 where people will be able to earn that without paying national insurance. So quite a saving there. Then I also saw the Institute for Fiscal Studies has crunched some numbers and they've worked out that if you earn under £35,000 a year, effectively it means you will be paying slightly less national insurance. However if you earn over £35,000 a year you will be paying more. Not as much as you would have been paying if that threshold hadn't been raised but of course as you earn more the amount of national insurance that you're paying is going to increase. So there is going to be quite a lot of pain but Dan as we know the big thing that is happening that isn't really being talked about is that income tax threshold has been frozen for four years. And if you think about where it would have been if it had increased inflationary levels at 8%, that's about an extra thousand pounds. So effectively, it kind of is a tax cut already.
1: Yeah, so national insurance is one thing. Income tax rate is going to change. And this is the other thing I, I, I took away as a sort of a, a positive. So um, we're going to see a drop from 20% to 19%. For the basic rate of income tax, this won't actually happen until 2024, which is um, which is a bit mean. But I guess it 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 takes a while to sort of adjust all the systems, and um, this certainly has a big impact on on pensions as well, because it kind of implies that at the moment when you when you get pension tax relief, if you pay in eighty pence, the government will top up your contributions by another twenty pence. But it implies that in the future, if you pay in eighty one p, you'll get a contribution from the government of 19p so there's some there's definitely going to be some changes there for for sort of pensions but um, ultimately it means that when you take the money out of your pension if if you're on um, on the basic rate and there's a reduction in that um, rate of income tax then you won't have to pay as much tax on those on on sort of the section of your your retirement savings that um, are are taxable Uh, but that's you know that's a couple of years down the line but this is the problem I think a lot of pensioners were going thought they're going to get something to help them pay the bills. So, you know, they've got this big, big increase in the cost of living, but really there wasn't anything from the chancellor to you know, to hand them apart from this small five hundred million pounds pot that will be spread around local authorities for um, you know for help there. But really, it's it's nothing at all. It's just it's just. It, I think this is where um, the spring statement really did let down the public in terms of sort of the, the cost of living
2: crisis. Yeah, I mean, that is a teeny tiny amount, that 500 million pounds, when you consider that, you know, the amount that's already been spent for that 150 pounds in terms of the council tax rebate and the 200 pounds that people get in terms of a loan, that's, you know, 9 billion. So this just puts into some kind of perspective, the scale of the issue when we're talking about an increase in the cost of living, just thinking about energy that's going to go up by 54% in just a few days' time. And the pension, well, that's only going up by 3.1% because a lot of people were wondering whether or not the Chancellor in this spring statement would reinstate the triple lock, which, of course, sees uh, pensions go up by either earnings, inflation, or 2.5%. He didn't do that. And although the inflation rate, you know, it, it, it was... Not as much back then. It was only sort of 3.1%. Earnings were up an awful lot higher and they would have got a lot more. I think there was a talk of around sort of 8%, which, to be honest with you, when you look at inflation now and where the OBR predicts inflation is heading, then that would really help because this pension increase for pensioners is going to feel like a cut.
1: Yeah, I mean, the OBR is sort of thinking that they'll have – average inflation this year is 7.4% but you know we could see it peak at 8.7% later this year which is you know just as alarming and and the OBR is saying that living standards won't get back to pre-pandemic levels until 2024-2025 so you've got a couple of years of pain ahead of you I think unless you've got you know Adequate savings or, or, or a highly paid job, um, in which to sort of act as a cushion. But um, you know, real household disposable income will fall this year at the fastest rate since records began in 1950. So that you know, that is very alarming.
2: And it's interesting that the OBR is is talking about a peak of eight point seven percent because we've already heard from the Bank of England suggesting that we could get into double digit inflation by the end of the year. You know. 10% and more and to be honest with you, when you realize that the inflation rate which we've got from February at 6.2% didn't take into account any of the impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and just think about where we've seen the oil price go, where we've seen the price at the pump go and what we're expecting to happen when we get the next price cap in October. You know, that number does, I think, feel a little bit soft. There was another little nugget, which might help some motorists. Although, to be honest with you, you know, every time you pass the pump at the moment, it does seem like the price has gone up by 5p. However, from 6 o'clock, Wednesday night, the evening of the spring statement, the price of that will be brought down by 5p a litre. So at the moment, yeah, it's around £3 for filling up an average car. But when you consider how much you're paying for everything else, it doesn't feel like a lot, Dan.
1: No, my my, my car's been parked on, uh, outside my house um, unused for a, quite a long time, you know, get get good time to get on your bike so um, get some exercise at the same time don't have to pay for pay for petrol but you know this is you know, this sort of the, the what's going on in you know, the bigger picture it shouldn't come as a surprise that the obr has downgraded its economic forecast for the uk this year and next year so it was looking for 6% this year that's now been slashed to 3.8% Next year, it was looking for 2.1%. That's been cut to 1.8%. So, um, you know, there's a clear impact here on consumers. There are going to be a big impact on consumer spending, i.e. it's going to be probably less of it. An impact on businesses. I imagine that their profit margins are being squeezed. There may be less willingness for companies to invest, to hire. Uh, and, of course, all this adds up to, you know, a reduction in economic activity. So um, it's a difficult one for you know the, the chancellor he was sort of started this spring statement in um in a, you know in a very difficult situation and there's probably a lot of people watching this that perhaps normally wouldn't have uh, much interest in, in sort of the, the financial side of um, politics but I think, you know, just just going away from it, uh, it it sort of he's done, you know, done some stuff. I think, you know, Labour were very quick to sort of criticise how he didn't really have this magic solution for consumers in particular. Um, And of course, now we're going to see two years of, uh, you know, slower economic activity. And it's going to be going to be pretty tight out there, I think.
2: And I'm just going to go back to the most vulnerable in society because, you know, clearly they are ones that are feeling the pinch the most. And when we're talking about, You know, the pressure on businesses. Uh, I was listening to uh, Richard Walker, the boss of Iceland earlier today, talking about trying not to pass on those extra costs to the consumer because he understands how difficult it is and works a lot with food banks and things. And he was saying that there are now people going to food banks asking not to get potatoes and root vegetables because they didn't have the money to be able to boil them up. I mean, that is how difficult things are. And I know a lot of people thought maybe there will be something on universal credit goes up by 3.1% in April. You know, that's half the level of what inflation was in February. And you've also got to remember that people had got used to having that £20 uplift, which was taken away last year. And a lot of people were just hoping that that would be reinstated it was a difficult line for the Chancellor to walk. We know that he has a huge amount of debt. He wants to bring that debt down. And we saw, you know, with the public sector uh, figures that came out yesterday, that the interest on debt payment is increasing. But there will be an awful lot of people sort of taking a look at what came out of this spring statement and really wishing that he had gone further.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to digest here. Um, We'll probably go away and take a closer look at some of these things, um, see if there's any sort of details that were were sort of missed in the headline stuff and perhaps on a future podcast, we'll we'll fill it in. But um, for now, I think that you've got the tax year end, it's less than a fortnight away. Um, People have plenty of questions about their personal finances anyway, let alone what's been announced in the spring statement. So um, we've brought on Kate Aitchinson Uh, tax director from RSM to talk us through some of the trickier areas of tax and where people actually get caught out.
0: So Kate, we thought it would be useful to cover some of the common mistakes or questions that people might have about their taxes in the run-up to tax year end. So let's start with pensions, obviously quite a meaty topic, but one of the most common mistakes people make with their pension is not claiming their higher rate tax relief through self-assessment. So can you explain a bit about what that involves and how people can go about doing that.
3: Yeah. So, just to sort of recap on what you're talking about there, that is where higher rate taxpayers pay money into their pension. They can receive higher rate relief on that. So, they will take pay tax on the income in their own hands at lower rate. How you normally do that is you would input that, your net contribution into your tax return. And, um, and receive the loan, it, it extends your basic rate band of tax, so which is all very techy sounding and quite complicated. Um, you're right, a lot of people just forget to claim it. If I'm being perfectly honest, because I don't think it's necessarily the first thing that people think about. What you can do if you have got a couple of years that you haven't claimed that relief is you can make what's called an overpayment relief claim to HMRC. So you've got up to four years to do that. So if there's a couple of years that you haven't claimed you can retrospectively claim that. Or alternatively, you can just use that on the government gateway and there should be a section on there which allows you to input personal pension contributions. Um, the other thing that I do see people trip over occasionally is confusing personal pension contributions with salary sacrificed pension contributions, which are treated slightly differently. Um, so that's just another thing just to, just to double check to make sure that it's not your contribution isn't being made as an employer contribution, which you can't claim that relief on.
0: And so, is there an easy way that people would know from looking at their payslip, for example, whether it was salary sacrifice or whether it was a pension contribution, if that makes sense?
3: Um, Two ways of doing it. One is to check with your employer how that's being dealt with, because how salary sacrifice works is you effectively swap salary. It does what it says on the tin. You're swapping salary for a benefit, which is a reduction in your salary for for the same amount. Most places these days would have the employer contribution. So, you have sacrificed some salary to make a bigger employer contribution. Um, It should show on your payslip as an employee contribution or alternatively, if you receive a a pension statement from your pension um, advisor, um, that should usually tell you if it's an employer or an employee contribution.
0: Okay, great. And so then sticking with pensions, people can benefit from something called carry forward, which gives them a higher pension allowance. But can you just explain what carry forward is and who might be able to use it and how they can go about using it?
3: Yep, carry forward, it's, it's quite a complex area. And I would always say on these things, just a caveat, it's quite easy to get wrong. So if, if you are in any doubt, I would definitely seek it Uh, independent advice and some assistance with that but in broad terms how that works is everyone has a limit of the amount of contribution you can make into your pension and receive tax relief on that on an annual basis and that is usually capped at £40,000 a year. If you haven't made the full contribution of £40,000 in a year what you can do is carry forward the excess to what you haven't used for up to four years. There are Lots of other sort of rules, it's quite a generous rule, but it's one of those where sort of the devil's in the detail. So you need to make sure that you have got pension provision for all of those years that you are looking to carry forward. And you need to make sure that you've got what are called net relevant earnings. So that's making sure you've got, broadly speaking, it's salary or self-employment income that you've got payments that you can make in. its it, Like I say, it's quite a complex area, but if you have got carry forward that you've not utilised, you can make quite a large contribution into your pension if you can meet all the various criteria. Sure. That um, If you did think that you met the criteria, there were there's more help and
0: guidance on the gov.uk website on how you can do that. But I think it might be quite handy for people that, for instance, have come into a bit of money or got a very big bonus or a payout, for example, and wanted to put more in their pension this year, right?
3: Definitely. And it's one of those things. Pensions, I'm a bit of a cheerleader for pensions. They're very tax efficient vehicles. You need to look at what you're investing those in, which is definitely something that you would need to deal with your financial advisor on. But from a tax perspective, they're really, really efficient. So, they're, they're free of inheritance tax and your capital gains and your income can roll up in within the pension itself completely tax-free. So, they grow in a really efficient way.
0: So next up, I wanted to ask whether there are any tax benefits to being a couple that people might forget about. Obviously, there used to be bigger tax breaks and the government has kind of whittled away at them, but are there still any tax benefits of of being a couple that people might not know
3: about? There is. It's often an awkward conversation to have with with clients when they've been together for a long time, but they're not married. And I'd always say never get married just for the tax breaks. There has to be something else (laughs) keeping you together. Um, But what you can do between married couples and and civil partners for that matter, is you can, usually when you dispose of an asset, you can crystallise what's called a capital gain. So, if you are transferring shares between individuals, that would usually be a disposal for tax purposes. Where you have a married couple or a civil partnership, you can make those gifts without crystallising a tax charge. And again, that's from a capital gains tax perspective. That's also from an inheritance tax perspective. And what we often encourage our clients to do is particularly where you've got a couple who have very different incomes so you've got one who potentially is a higher rate taxpayer and one who potentially doesn't pay any tax at all because they've not got the income so what we often do is ask them to look at their affairs and see if you can structure them in a slightly different way you can make gifts between yourselves and just structure that you could actually end up paying tax at a slightly lower rate if it's for example in your lower paying spouse's hands rather than the higher paying the higher earner's hands
0: Okay, so that's good. And then there's also something called the marriage allowance, isn't there, that couples can benefit from?
3: There is. So that's helpful where you've got one of the two spouses who um, doesn't utilise the whole of their personal allowance. So what you could have is that they can you can elect to transfer some of your allowance to your, to your other spouse. There are, again, a number of different things you need to think about on this. So you need to be married or in a civil partnership. You have to make sure you're not utilising your personal allowance, and you need to make sure that your partner is actually paying income tax at the basic rate. So that means their income's between so around twelve and a half thousand and fifty thousand. Anyone who's got a higher earning spouse, so that's anyone earning above fifty thousand pounds, won't be able to claim the marriage allowance.
0: Okay, so it could be um, handy, essentially, I guess, for someone who has little or no income and their spouse is a is a basic rate taxpayer. Yeah.
3: That's correct. It's, we're not talking huge amounts of savings, but it can be up to around a, £250 a year, a year that you can save in tax.
0: And anything is better than nothing. So exactly. <laughs> um, We're recording this before the spring statement, so I'm not expecting you to have a crystal ball and know exactly what's <laughs> going to happen in that. But um, are there any big changes coming in the next tax year that people um, maybe need to prepare for?
3: Yeah, so one of the things that we we have known about for a while now is what's called the health and social care Levy, which is coming in uh, from the 6th of April. So how that's working is for certainly for this first year, that's an increase to national insurance of 1.25%. So that's payable by anyone who's who's paying national insurance that their national insurance take will go up a little bit. The other increase is on dividends. So for people who have got salary and they've and they've also got dividend income as well, and um, that tax liability is going to go up by 1.25%, which again isn't isn't a large percentage, but if you've got significant salary or, or large dividends that you get, it, it could be quite a meaningful difference to your tax liability in the year.
0: Yeah, and it's a big a cost that people need to look out for, I guess, isn't
3: it? It is. So, are there any other
0: things we should be looking out for for the next tax year?
3: The other thing is probably things to look out for that, that aren't going to change. So, um, personal allowances and rate bands aren't changing for the next tax year either. So for those people who are lucky get enough to get an a increase in pay in the next 12 months, your tax bands aren't going to change. So if you are currently not earning enough, for example, to utilise your full personal allowance, if your pay goes up over the personal allowance, you will actually have a tax liability this year. So, that's something also to just be aware of. It's called – the technical term in the industry is fiscal drag. So, more people, I suspect, will end up paying tax where they haven't previously. It can bite particularly where you're on or around where allowances change. So, for people who have, for example, child benefit payments, if your um, pay goes up, it's likely that if it's likely to fall over that £50,000 bracket, you might end up needing to repay some of that. And that's certainly something where I've seen clients get tripped up in the past is that they fall into that band between fifty and £60,000 where they need to start repaying that. If you're not aware of that, that is something to just, just bear in mind because HMRC have certainly been sending letters to people who they think might need to repay some of their child benefit.
0: That's good. Sneak, sneaky tax rises that we need to look out for. That's a good <laughs> um, thanks a lot for joining us, Kate. I really appreciate it.
3: No problem. Thanks for having me.
2: Laura Souter talking to Kate Aitchison there and regular listeners might be wondering why we haven't commented on the markets yet because it's not as if there hasn't been quite a lot going on, Dan. Uh, We would normally kick off the show with the latest on stocks and shares, but we turned the podcast on its head this week for obvious reasons because the spring statement really has dominated the agenda. But fear not, Dan, update us on what's been happening with the FTSE and more.
1: Well, some good news, actually. It's been a pretty good week with markets bouncing back. Uh, you know, The FTSE 100 has now clawed back all its losses year to date and is slightly ahead since the start of January. Hang Seng Index in Hong Kong is up 10% on the week. And in the US, the Nasdaq Index is up 5%. So to me, it feels like investor confidence is starting to improve Following, you know, a very, a very sort of difficult time linked to the Ukraine crisis, and before that, we had all these sort of inflationary issues that are still there now. CNN does this thing called a fear and greed index, which a week ago had a reading of 19, which was classified as extreme fear. That's now moved to a reading of 44, which it's still in fear territory, but it's getting very close to neutral. And I just think if you, if you look at what's moving on the markets, um, investors were initially nervous to sort of pounce on sort of potential bargains when, when markets sold off, when the Ukraine crisis first unfolded. But it seems to be now there's you know, much greater confidence to go sort of fishing for potential bargains. Now, I know looking at my own portfolio for the last month, there's been lots of damage to share prices. And, you know, it does take a lot of guts to avoid ditching everything that's falling. But, you know, time and time again, we say, don't panic in terms of strife. The market does not travel in a straight line. And I think those who are patient. Sat through the difficult market conditions. Hopefully, seeing now there's some signs that the portfolio will start to be repaired, um, and this is this is quite good. And, and and if we look at some other things that have been going on the markets, it's been pretty quiet on the news front. There was a confirmation of potential U.S. private equity takeover interest in Ted Baker, and the only other thing that really caught my eye was being Q owner Kingfisher unveiling record full year results as it increased its market share in the UK and in France. Yeah,
2: That was interesting because the boss was also talking about the fact that although we might have stopped doing as much painting and DIY and decorating and that kind of thing, the cost of living crisis might actually make us think about spending more on insulation or solar panels and look, hey, Now, 0% VAT on those following these spring statements. So it'd be interesting to see whether or not people have the spare cash to spend on that kind of uh, thing. Uh, Another thing that caught my eye, Dan, was uh, a lot of chatter again about who might buy the pharmacy chain boots it was put up for sale by its owner walgreens in january and since then there's been sort of lots of toing and froing we know certainly a couple of interested parties pulled out because they said that the 7 billion pound price tag rumored price tag was just too high at the moment It looks like the Issa brothers are in pole position. And uh, I'm sure you all know exactly who they are because, of course, they were behind the deal to buy Asda. They've also bought Couplands, Café Leon. They own an awful lot of um, petrol station forecourts as well. A lot of debt, though, down there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, um, I guess they've got a, a a big plan to be able to repay that debt there. But you know, debt is never a good thing to have too much of. I must admit. So,
2: well, if a deal isn't struck, there's been speculation it might return to the London Stock Exchange in what could be one of the biggest IPOs London's seen in years. So,
1: on that subject, there's been lots of discussion over the last couple of years about how London goes about retaining its status as a global financial hub, how it needs to evolve to remain competitive with international markets. So Danny recently caught up with Neil Shah from the investment research firm Edison. Talk about the challenges facing London as the preferred destination for companies floating on the stock market. So let's hear what they had to say.
2: There's been a lot of talk about how London needs to adapt to become a formidable force going forward. We've heard a lot of talk about um, IPOs and uh, growth companies perhaps not feeling as welcome in London as they would in the United States. Let's just start with where we are right now. How is London doing competitively against the likes of the US and other European markets.
4: So London last year had a very, very good year. I mean, I think, I I can't remember the statistics, but it it represented something close to, it was over 50% of the capital raised in Europe from an IPO perspective was raised in London. it it of course lags uh, the U S and the U S market is huge, um, but you know once you strip out things like the spacs etc, it it was comp it was starting to you know the gap was narrowing. So London, um, you know the advantages of London. Um, From a time zone perspective, it's in a good place. Uh, From a law and language perspective, it's in a good place. From a market infrastructure perspective, it's in a good place. There's a lot of things going for London. And, you know, there's a recognition that uh, they need to make it easier to to remain competitive. So you've seen all these reviews um, over the last year, the Lord Hill review, um, you know, the the FCA thinking about uh, rebundling uh to allow more more research i think i think that that, that you know it, london's working hard <laughs> to to make itself attractive where the where the gap is and i think you know the recent decis- decision of arm um, to list potentially in the us rather than london shows that there's there's a long way to go before it becomes as competitive as the U.S. market, and I think that there is no, you know, reg, there's no simple fix to this from a regulation perspective. The reason that you know companies attract a higher valuation in the U.S. is that they have investors who are better informed. Um, and I think that comes from, A, the the very rich ecosystem that's been created in certain sectors. So there's a lot of peers that, that you learn from a lot of these sort of companies um, and also very sort of deep VC markets. So, com- you know, you can see companies quite early on in its um, journey before it comes to market, which I think London's going to have to take some time to uh, replicate so, you know, my, my answer has always been that we need to spend some time actually upping investor education to get to ourselves to the point where we're going to compete in terms of valuation multiples to what's being achieved in the US. Um, but that, that's going to take time.
2: From Arm's perspective, what do you think is lacking from the London market and what could have... What would have made the difference?
4: Look, I, I, I mean, I can't sp- speak specifically for ARM because, I, you know, honestly, I don't know the decision making that went on in the company. But I can speak more generally for a, for a tech company. Um, you know, you do get you do get a higher valuation um, in the US. Coupled with that, you know, you also get an acceptance that of higher Pay packets for the management teams who bring these companies to market compared to, to London as well, and if you think, a uh, you know, you're an entrepreneur who's spent a long time building a business, and you know your exit route is so much richer in the U.S. market than it is in, in the U.K. market, clearly that is attractive. Now, why why is that happening? Uh, you know, if you if you take a look at the way U.S. investors um, look at some of these tech companies. There, there's a really deep fundamental understanding of, of the tech companies. And, you know, we would take a look at um, software as a service as, a, as an example where, you know, if you if you understand those kind of businesses, um, often, you know, there's an upfront investment which leads to, uh, a, a company often has to make an upfront investment in a SaaS business and it leads to, you know, lower profitability. But, you know, it leads to a longer term revenue growth and customer base um u.s investors are just better at understanding you know average lifetime value of customers they tend to look at metrics broader than a sort of p multiple to get an understanding of what these businesses are worth and and it comes back to the point i was making which is that to to change that you need to change um the way you know UK investors um, or or change the education of UK investors so that they can start to understand these companies to the same level and depth as the US investors and and would would therefore be more comfortable paying uh, those sort of higher multiples because in their minds they would have got over. the the sort of margin of safety around sort of future earnings um, because they would have understood it better. So I I think that that's something which is going to take time and no amount of changes to regulation is going to change that. That that comes down to creating an ecosystem in, in the market that is really getting investors to understand these companies better.
2: Because then investors would feel more comfortable and the companies themselves would feel more comfortable. I mean, I'm thinking about the way that the UK deals with startups now. Incredible success, but scale-ups, it's a different matter. And often it seems that the only option open is either listing in the US or being swallowed up by a bigger company. But time- is potentially against London market, particularly when you have the kind of IPO like Deliveroo saw, which really not confidence.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I think. Look, I, I don't, you know, given given last year, I think you know it's London's gone a long way to start bridging that gap. I mean, it it's, it was a number of years. Before uh, you know, it sort of sees the mantle. What I think is being created in London is a market where smaller companies. And so, the, the, you know, the challenge for a company listing in the US is that even if you are a billion-dollar market cap, you can be quite lost. I mean, when Apple is, you know, a trillion-dollar market cap company, it is a real challenge for some of the small, what I consider SMEs to to list in the US market because you 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 are often lost. London's been very attractive at, at at sort of playing its call card in terms of where its sweet spot is, is for those smaller companies who would get the time and attention and investor focus, which they may not be able to get from the U.S. market. In terms of then sort of supporting those companies from a scale-up perspective, you're absolutely right. I think, um, you know, what you want is a group of investors who you know you know support a company through its journey understand that that you know there's going to be short term hits to profitability as it as it invests and grows but that they support that company through those uh those dips and that's not always evident in the london market and i think that that's something which you know we as a community have to spend some time uh, working on
2: and how do we get that because it seems obvious but it, it's probably not just one step or even two step one group of people or even two groups of people it it seems like it's a a holistic approach it is i
4: mean I, I think i think that there is you know some things to take away from the us market firstly they have a very deep vc market there and i think that there is more work we could do to um improve that now uh, you know i would say that there's been success so Lon- london in particular is now starting to develop its niches so fintech is uh, you know a very rich deep niche in the vc community here and you know those companies can afford to stay private longer as as they have been able to do so in the u.s market you're also seeing public funds actually moving back into the public. Private space because they want experience of developing, you know, learning about these companies in the early stages, getting to know the management team so that when they actually come to be a public company, they're much more comfortable with, you know, the management teams and the business models, et cetera. So I think that those steps are starting to take place in certain niches. The second part of it, in terms of, you know, supporting um, scale up companies, I think that comes down to some hard miles and graft in terms of, you know, how do you do that? Well, you've got to, you know, you've got to spend time uh, doing the research. And that's, you know, where we spend time. I think the investment community needs to spend some time and, and, uh, you know, allocate resource to being able to do that. If you can do that, you're starting to get a much better picture of, you know, the future earnings projections of these companies and the right metrics to track them by. And then I think you will be able to, Make the case as to this is why I'm owning this company, and I care less about the near-term impact of profitability and PE, because I can see the metrics are moving in the right place, and that's that's the, that's the key, I think, which is that um, there's there's a lot of investor education that that needs to happen. Now, how does that happen? Well, it can happen. Uh, I mean, I I, I I you know I heard a, a, an argument that you know, well, it would happen naturally as we start to build clusters. I, I think you can't leave it to chance. I think, you know, that the investment needs to be made and you know, there's lots of money being directed um by Treasury, by um, you know, other sort of areas of the market in terms of how do we tackle this. One of the places I think we should spend some money is is, you know, in improving the, the knowledge and understanding of, of you know, the, the sectors that we want to grow in, whether that's healthcare or whether that's tech. London, London's london got a space for that, that I think we could do, um, create a very attractive environment for growing companies with a little bit of investment in terms of upping people's knowledge.
2: Neil, it's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure.
1: Thank you very much. That's all from us this week. Don't miss next week's show where Laura Suter and Tom Selby will be chatting about everything to do with lifetime ISIS. I'll also be talking to Rohan Reddy from Global X about what the Western world might do to secure future energy supplies now that Russia is being removed from the equation. Thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you next time.
0: Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes.